You don't sound autistic. Well, uh, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. Welcome back to You Don't Sound Autistic. I'm Blake. And I'm Michelle. And I'm autistic. And I'm not. Before we get into the uh, autistic stuff today, Rochelle had asked me to make some music for it. And um, speaking of music, I appreciate all the comments um, coming through on Facebook. Just kidding. Nobody said anything about the amazing music that opens our show every week. I actually thought it'd be a cool idea to end each episode with a new track. <laughs> I have so many crappy tracks that I could just throw at the end <laughs> um, that I that I make just to kind of help me with stress relief and stuff. But Rochelle's working on a, a YouTube channel. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yes, I'm working on a YouTube channel to support um, RochelleChandler.com, which is my uh, website designed to help people through the same process that we're describing here every week. So, you know, at this point, I want some of that Blake magic to help me with my YouTube videos. And um, if anyone who has ever seen Blake's video work, uh, you know, it's always got some really good music to it. And most of it, if you don't know, he creates himself in one way or another. So, yeah, naturally, you're exactly the first person and only person I would ask for help. So Rochelle has asked me to make some music. And uh, the first thing she she said was like, oh, here, here's this uh, Taylor Swift song. <laughs> like, make something, you know, be inspired by it and, and make something. So... So I listened to the Taylor Swift song, and I went in completely different directions with the music. Okay. Uh, it sounds nothing like Taylor Swift, which I guess is a good thing, so we can't be sued for copyright infringement. Yeah, it's not supposed to sound like Oh, it her. doesn't. It's supposed to be a Blake-inspired... It is. It is very Blake, Blake-esque. Like dark and weird. Oh gosh, this I didn't is an uplifting it. sight. I didn't. I know, and that's the thing. So I made four... Give me a break, okay? Okay, let me hear. I'm excited. I made I've four tracks... Oh, four tracks. Okay. Um, and of course, um, I'll have to go back and like edit in the actual tracks so they sound okay. But okay. So what you're probably hearing won't hopefully will sound better than what's on my phone for Rochelle. So this is track one, which is called TS1. for that one there's uh the drum intro some bass line and then whatever that keyboard thing i was doing was i have no idea okay i didn't hate it let's see let's hear the next one all right here's track two Sounds like Mario Brothers. It does. <laughs> I can say pass on this one. I like it for another thing, though. But it sounds like... 
yo so it's like some rap thing or something and then i put in some weird ethereal stuff oh my gosh this is like ah rochelle scary okay. da, 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 da. cool right. cool noises um i think yeah, thanks <laughs> so my site is about illuminating neurodiversity which i'm now calling hey, that song is neurodiversity i mean it is but i mean <laughs> i think the part i'm trying to focus on is the illumination part you know the well that's the you get to start with the darkness to show what needs to be illuminated first. i mean See? that's very true that there's no doubt you don't you feel can't like have light without dark that's right so you need the thing to illuminate that right there was autistic Okay, well... It represented uh, in musical form. I have two more tracks here. Okay. We'll, we'll go ahead and get I'm through. Go, I'm open, I'm open. Go All ahead. Right, here we go, here we go. This is track three. So you, you like this one? I like this one a lot. Okay. It doesn't sound too dark to you? It doesn't sound dark to me at all. It sounds very intriguing. I just love all the layers. There, there are a lot. Of, I thought you might like this one the best, even though it's still kind of weird. Oh, no. I don't think it's weird at all. I like it. I like all the different dimension in there. All right. And then there's one last one again. I don't know. We'll okay. see. Now, okay. maybe it's better to... I'm open-minded still. I mean, there's you. Right. I, I've learned Like, sometimes. again, I led with Taylor Swift. And each of these tracks is labeled TS. But nothing like this. Which <laughs> is... is uh, this is totally through the Blake completely filter. Completely not Taylor Swift. No. Here's a track four. I was surprised you put so many repeating patterns in this one because I thought repeating patterns drove you nuts. Okay, so we talked earlier. I was in the middle of making something. Oh, right. And then you said, can you make me this intro song for this thing? And so I stopped what I was doing and just basically went through and threw four bars together in four different songs using different templates of uh, styles of music. So I did like a singer-songwriter style and like the piano and more of like a almost like a techno vibe mm -hmm. with the the different drums and, and different instruments that I had available. So that's what I came up with with those four songs. I appreciate that. I always forget when I ask um, for something that it means to you that you do it right away. Like I always think I'm just saying, oh, like in the next couple of days or so when you get a chance. But I always forget that you put everything down to handle. Like if we, even in mid-conversation, if we're stopping to talk about something, then your immediate reaction is, oh, I got to do it right now. Yeah, so I don't forget. Yeah, that's still... So that's actually something that you can help me with because I tried to do some research on it and I was actually having a hard time. So maybe I won't be able to touch on it as much as I hoped I could. Okay. But I was talking to my cousin, Nicole, and she was saying that she listens to the show and her son listens. And 
think his partner listens and which is really cool. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, we, I mean, and again, the fact that people are listening, we really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, please, you know, invite people to the Facebook group if you want to, you know, share uh, the show. And pl- I, w- I would love to see some um, some reviews. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see people's comments. Like, what yeah, are you more comments? What are you experiencing every day? You know, what what different things are coming up in your household? You know, anything that you might. Uh, feel comfortable discussing or we could work together I mean we've got a couple of posts on there that I'm really engaged in where uh, I think it's I was going somewhere with that sorry you totally cut me off I was gonna say real fast it's cool to see that in some way or another we're all working on very similar situations right but the stronger we are you know based is based on the more we collaborate I was talking about my cousin Yes, your cousin. And so what she said was, I can't believe I actually remember that. That's kind of a small miracle. Um, And she was talking about how, I think it was her son that that was um, asking if we would talk about hyperfixation or if I would talk about hyperfixation. Good topic. And so I was thinking, is is that the same as hyperfocus? I'm so used to hearing about hyperfocus, like the ADHD, because I have ADHD and I have autism. So I was thinking, I was like, is that something that deals directly with, with autistic tendencies? And I wonder if those two things tie in together. And I wasn't sure, Rochelle, if you had heard or if you're reading about it right now as we're, <laughs> as we're talking about it. But while you're doing that, let me, at the very least, let me touch on a couple of things that I, you know, do deal with on a regular basis that uh, I find very frustrating. I'd like to hear from anyone that also deals with these same issues and tendencies because it's something I didn't realize was maybe part of my neurodiversity because, again, my journey in neurodiversity began when I was born most likely but uh, I didn't know about it I came out of the closet last year you know of the neurodiverse closet I had no hair I am and uh, it's a big reveal so I I, I, I find that my short-term memory is, is pretty terrible. Uh, a lot of times when I'm in the middle of writing I have a lot more clarity and able to think um, I'm able to think in a way that I feel, represents my thoughts much clearer than it does when I'm actually sitting down and speaking. I feel like I'm far more eloquent when I'm sitting down and writing. You know, when I hear, I have to listen to the, uh, the podcast several times before, um, before any of you hear it. And so I hear it right now as I'm recording it, I'm going to hear it at least one or two more times when I'm going through and, you know, doing some edits and adding music and stuff like that. And then I'll listen to again after I put it up live for people to be able to listen to. And uh, it's it's one of those things where I hear myself speak and it's I'm almost embarrassed about the way that I sound because I don't feel like I'm representing myself very well. Uh, part of that's probably because one of the things that comes with having depression, anxiety, um, even with autism, I think there's a lot of uh, low self-esteem that comes ADHD with that. ADHD too. Uh, negative self-image. Yeah. Uh, especially with the ADHD, you get that rejection, that rejection sensitivity, sensitivity dysphoria. Right? <laughs> you shush with that euphoria crap. Um, you get the rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which you know we've talked about that, but not necessarily in great detail. But just to kind of touch on it because we just said it. Really, what that is is that people with that condition feel rejection so much more deeply than uh, a neurotypical person was, or someone else that is unaffected by that type of. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a sensitivity to emotional input. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, we can say that. Um, 
and so it's it there's all there's there's so many layers to it you know you, you can say something you know the, the you know go back to the name of the show you don't sound autistic but you know really we're talking about as Rochelle said neurodiversity and neurobiodiversity you know, and neuro what neurobiodiversity you if you you can't interrupt a autistic person when they're in the middle of a tirade okay i'm sorry shush you have plenty of times to talk on here it's my turn it's big daddy's turn (laughs) (laughs) please keep going i'm trying man i'm sorry um okay what the hell was i talking about you can't i have that's i'm 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 saying you can't interrupt mr short-term memory loss it's terrible um i feel like the dude from memento we Mark, were find a pen, about find a pen, find a pen, find a pen. Rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Dysphoria. Well, and, and and just kind of I'm I'm just kind of trying to paint the layers here of of these different conditions. They they don't exist in a way where they commingle in a rigid fashion. Like everything kind of folds over itself. What the hell was I saying? Rejection. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about rejection sensitivity dysphoria anymore. No, I was t- the thing that my cousin talked about. Uh, come on, you're supposed to be the neurotypical person here. Follow the show, man. I am. You said that her son wanted you to talk about rejection sensitivity. No, dysphoria. no, I didn't. I didn't say that he wanted to talk about rejection sensitivity dysphoria. I. <laughs> where have you been? I. Th- I'm sitting here trying to cover for you, and I'm <laughs> going off. You. I'm walking off into the forest without a machete. And just blah, blah, blah. Sorry, and I was you're reading. You're supposed to be reading about this thing, and you're like, rejection sensitivities. <laughs> That's what it is. That's the thing it is. Sorry, I got a little lost because you asked me to look something up, and I found it on a site that was a little difficult to comprehend at first. But hyperfixation and hyperfocus are not the same thing. All right, give it to me. What are the differences so I can so I can talk about what they what so, they admit, what they mean to me and what they mean to our audience, perhaps? According to this writer. The difference is the length of time in which you're in this zone. So hyperfocus okay. would be like the focus you applied to today to create those tracks for me. Like you kind of put everything aside and you just were right in the zone. And then before you got up, you were completed, you know, with your task. But hyperfixation would be if you came in every single day and went into your computer and went into that creative zone and, you know, continued to work on the same sickle set. English skill set sickle scat <laughs> the coffee in my mouth it's the sickle scat the skill set I am dyslexic you know like even my words they'll come oh, out oh I know this is coming from a woman that once called pumpkin pie cum pum pie <laughs> you're not supposed to tell people that oh I'm telling everybody <laughs> I was tongue tied would anyone like a slice of cum pum pie <laughs> no thanks we're all full <laughs> Yeah, you know things like that. I do not remember. And then you bring you have this like vault, this memory. This I can't remember. I couldn't remember what I said thirty <laughs> seconds ago. But I'll never forget cum pum pie. Tell you that much. I wish that you know. In, in fact, when I was I in totally college, forgot. I pledged cum pum pie. <laughs> I didn't get in. <laughs> Rochelle just spit her coffee out everywhere. Even I was surprised I said that. <laughs> I still had some try not to get it all over the microphone. <laughs> I know better than to drink around you. That's your fault, man. <laughs> man. Who knew we needed an applause break? <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> anyway, you were just saying something dyslexic and then I interrupted. 
I don't know what I was saying now. You were talking about uh, the the differences between oh, hyperfixation hyper, and hyperfocusing. Right. Hyperfixation would be like if you came home every single day and focused in the zone for you know several hours on the exact same skill set like you know this music production or your comedy or something in this creative realm that you find um you know enjoyable it's a it's a, an interest of yours so that's the the difference it's just the length of time at which you dedicate yourself to that particular zone so i suppose would that be like my my knowledge of like film and stuff like that would that be a hyperfixation i think that would be fair because you've dedicated so many hours to it yeah um it's definitely a, an invention an invention <laughs> I mean, should I, should I, have, have we talked about that? Have we I talked about that? Just, uh, you know, is that something that's interesting to talk about? My, like, why did I even get interested in making Mo- films and recording and getting into media and stuff in the first place? We have not talked about it, although I do have my theories. What do you mean theories? You know, you know the story. I know the story, but I have alternate theories. Okay. So, uh... Just so I can, you, you'll, you'll hear the hyperfixation, I suppose. I don't know. I Like I said, if if anyone wants to correct me, please do. I am just going based on personal experience and, you know, I have to kind of build a framework around what my understanding of a certain terminology means, uh, just like anyone, I suppose. But I went to film school, you know, ultimately, and I work in media. That's I don't work in the film industry, but I do work with people's personal films and photos and stuff like that. That's what I do for a living. And that's not necessarily what the hyperfixation would be. My real interest is like comedians and um, knowledge of filmmakers and actors. And I used to be a lot better at it, but um, I would, I just, I'm pretty good at knowing directors, producers, writers, uh, musicians that work on films um, actors and how they're connected. You know, when people play that game, the I think it's is it six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm good at that shit. You can go like twelve. Uh, I'm but like, you have Michael Jackson ex- was in a movie once, and I'm like, okay, who is Michael Jackson in the movie with? Uh, it's like some obscure thing like that. Yeah, you and, have an insane recall for it. And faces, you do this weird thing with faces and voices, where it's like their original face and voice from when they were 12 is somehow imprinted in your brain as like a database point. And then they'll age and they haven't been anything in in a decade or something. And then they'll be in something randomly as an, you know, as an older version of themselves. And all of a sudden you're like, Hey, there's that person from that film I watched in 1988 and and you'll be right. Yeah. I'm good at that. Uh, So going back to first grade, I was um, sitting in class and uh, one of my friends and which is really which is this is kind of funny so uh i'm i'm facebook friends with him and i'm not going to name drop but i'm facebook friends with him and i remember kind of talking about this story i think on facebook and just saying it was the thing that inspired me to want to go into film and he was like i never knew that i'm like how do you not remember but of course it's not some it's not some moment that meant anything to him because he was already he was the one that was already in the movie business. So, uh, so my friend, he came into class one day and we were doing show and tell and his show and tell was really just talking about his experiences working on the movie hook directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Mm -hmm. Robin Williams Mm -hmm. and Julia Roberts, uh, probably came out in 1990. We, well, we got a computer probably, I'm trying to think when did that movie come out? I was in first grade. I was, well, yeah, like early nineties. Um, Anyway, and so he was talking about meeting Robin Williams and Steven Spielberg, and my mind was 
completely blown because to me, I was like, regular people? I mean, I know this dude. It's little Tommy. He just sits next to me in class. Mm-hmm. And um, and I was just like in awe. He was talking about working on the movie sets. And that was like a moment that completely changed my entire life because from that, from before that, my options were like all the crap you hear about when you're growing up, like policemen, firemen, uh, be a doctor, you know, very just like lawyer, generic lawyer. Sure. No one actually, well, actually that's not true. My, yeah, my yeah, dad did say dad. I would, ma- I would have made a great litigator. You would. Then I realized what I really felt like I was meant to do. And, um, that was to entertain people and be in the movie business or something, you know, to be a director or an actor. A, it wasn't even a conscious choice as far as like how I just started knowing things about movies a lot of that didn't come until I was a little bit older but as I would as I would watch movies I'd always pay attention to the credits to me it was such a normal thing to know everything about the movies I would know lines of dialogue and 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 I would see a movie once maybe and then a few years later I could quote a line from it and someone say what did you just watch the movie yesterday it's like no actually I haven't seen it since 1996 yeah, you get that kind of a response all the time, which is really annoying. It's like people listen to your memory, and you have a sharp memory on certain things, especially moments that you experience positively. Well, in any way, if you really experience a moment, you you can remember every single thing about it. And I have watched so many people almost like be so envious that they take it out on you, like like they're trying to ridicule you for it, and yet it's their bad memory. It's an interesting thing because what you have is a really strong talent. And I've like spent 10 years trying to figure out how do we get that talent to make him money? Because it's so spot on. It's like a business in there. Like you could totally bring up, you just need your own radio show about or podcast about movies. Like you have that in-depth I did. Knowledge. I had one with my friend Richard and, and no one listened. Thanks a lot. I listened. <laughs> no, I know. But I'm just saying it's, it is, it is the, one of the toughest businesses to get into. It's one of those businesses where it takes incredible amounts of connections and you need to, people would need to share my stuff and they don't. (laughs) I think people like, you know, like I I was talking to my cousin Michelle once and she was saying like, oh my God, I love, you're so funny. Uh, All the stuff you post on Facebook is so funny. And then I'm like, really? Because most of the time people don't really share or like the stuff that I post. I think people look at stuff and I, and then I realized I'm like, I don't really like or share things as much as I probably could or should either. And then it's because you, you would need this audience that is so broad and large Mm -hmm. in order for you to get enough people to really push things out there. Right. Anyway, that wouldn't, that felt very self-serving and tangential. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. You're supposed to be the, the. Look, you know, what's that line from the movie? But as far as men and women, men are the gas, women are the brakes. <laughs> yeah, well, so, who's I... Dri- who's driving this thing? You today, because I uh, I got Rochelle's, stopped. Rochelle's reading. She's in La La Land. No, I got stopped last time I tried to jump in. Okay, please jump in. Okay, so... Um, I was trying to talk about... I was really trying... See, that's the problem. Um, I was trying to talk about hyperfixation and hyperfocus, and I started going off in, <laughs> in a completely different direction but it is what i am fixated on which is you know would be um that that part of my brain that just goes to 
wanting to talk about movies. And when I meet people that want to talk about movies or want to watch movies um, or talk about comedy and stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know, that's just something that. So do you know what that's called? Uh, annoying? No. Oh, um, what, what? Well, if someone doesn't share your interest, it could become annoying. Oh, I thought you meant like when when you are hyper fixated on no, something. So what you're exploring right now is this concept of a shared interest. It's a really important topic actually. And I know that you're, um, and you're actually proving the point of why shared interest is such a bonding agent when it comes to relationships with someone who's on the spectrum or with any type of neurobiodiversity, in my opinion, because shared interest is, wait, what are we, we're calling it my, my biodiversity now? Neurobiodiversity. Okay. Yes. Um, and I believe it's because it's not just the brain that that responds divergently. I think it's the entire biology um, system. It's a parasympathetic dominant system. And I think it applies to, um, you know, not just ADHD and anxiety, depression and autism, but also empaths. So I think it's more of a place of um, kind of a chronic fight or flight my point is that shared interest is actually a skill that's supposed to develop when you're nine months old. And I didn't know this until we just got his big reveal and his diagnosis. And so looking into shared interest, it starts at a nine month old. Remember when the doctor said it's when something catches their attention and then they point at it to see that you see it too. Shared interest is really important because it's, it is the beginning of being able to connect with another person over a a topic and that shared interest is actually a really strong part of how children develop. And so it takes you all the way through adulthood. Um, This idea of being able to really hone in on the subjects that you love and then you start to know everything about it. And then, you know, for you, when you feel like you're in a comfortable place and you can start sharing that with someone else, that's a really cool moment because um, shared interest is far more important in a neurobiodiverse individual than a neurotypical. We talked about this last week when we were going through the questions and there was that one question that said like, you know, I get bored when I have to talk about other people's shared interests or whatever it said, like they don't share my interests. Do you remember that question? Yeah, I remember. That's what this is kind of referring to. So like I prefer to talk about the things I'm interested in, obviously, but if the whole room is dominated by conversations that I don't care about, it doesn't. I can still contribute and it doesn't bother me. And you do really well because you have also a shared interest in comedy. So that's one of the things that makes you a little unique. I, I, I work with and, you know, have other um, neurodiver- ni- <laughs> neurobiodiverse friends. But your Come ability. Pie. I know, man. <laughs> yeah. Your ability to jump in to conversations is not um, a skill that's across the board. It is something that you've worked on because you have this comedic genius and this ability for your, you know, that got that, what's it called? That comedic Did you just relief. call me a genius? I did. Oh, wow. Okay. I did. It's that you have that, that comedic relief. Like you, when you'll listen to everything going around, around you. And then the one thing that you'll contribute is this really funny joke that like makes the whole room crack up. Like you have that ability where a lot of people don't. I do. I am a wizard. You're very good at it. I mean, you're you're better than most people I know in my entire life. I've met people you know, though. None of them are that funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. No offense, if, if except for you listening. 
you're, <laughs> you're the you're the funniest. You're the funniest. Okay, but no, you're mean. This is a really big deal because um, Declan did not necessarily demonstrate the ability to um, to share an interest with us until recently. Like he's he really only shared an interest in something if he hit his head on it. Then he really wants you to look at it, and that's a pain cycle, not an interest cycle. You know, like oh, this door right. hit me, mom. Look, you know, ow, ow, the door. But the things he's interested in, he doesn't come up and show you. He still doesn't to this day. Uh, see, I, I don't know. I feel like he, I see him do that kind of stuff all the time. I feel like he, the difference is he's not doing it to the degree that doctors would say he should be doing it by this age. But I see him when he finds things that are interesting. He, you know, shows them to me, plays with them in front of me, wants me to see them. Well, so he has a very um, strong playtime fixation. So, like, he wants a play buddy. So what I'm saying is, like, if I'm sitting down to play with him, and we do it on the on the floor all the time, we just sit down on the floor and play with his toys, he'll share with me the things he's working on then sometimes. But if I'm in another room, he won't bring it to me and show it to me like that, which is what they're talking about. It's a little bit more like hunt you down and show you. So I guess I'm I'm just not around children enough to know that they would be like, hey, here's this Here's this thing. I don't know because he's two and a half. It's like, what's he gonna? What's he gonna do? That's maybe he just knows that he's not doing anything noteworthy. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's it. He, she said it was this a skill shit. that does that developed at nine months old. Like this isn't something a two and a half year old should have mastered by now. Yeah, I mean that's you're probably right, but from my own perspective, I feel like I know he's behind. But so I I, I think one of the things that you and I have done. Thank very, you for rescuing me. You're welcome. We've done very well. Um, and part of it is just because of Declan and who he is. He does want to play when he's in a safe environment. Our homes are a safe environment for him. He seems to do okay at school, but a little bit more reserved. So when he's home, he's got his preferred play buddy. And when we sit, I firmly believe that when we sit on the floor and just play with him, that is, even if he's in his own world and you're just playing kind of right next to him and trying to interact with him that is absolutely the best way to connect with a neurobiodiverse mind because they can be so focused that in order for them to stay connected to another person and be able to learn the social skills of interacting and playing, it really needs to be with one of us. Like I think neurotypical kids can go to school and they can learn how to do this from each other. But the part of... Um, especially in autism, the part of your brain that is supposed to learn these skills is uh, intuitive. So, and I believe it's like more cognitive intuitive, meaning that he, he supposed, he's supposed to watch how we do certain things and then put the pieces together and start doing them himself. And he doesn't. Like he has to really be kind of walked through the steps. But because we get down on the floor and we play with them, we're teaching a more facial um, expressions. We teach him um, how to respond to different, you know, moments in time. And so he's learning the social aspect by playing with us at the same time, where he wouldn't necessarily be learning the social aspect if he's playing with his friends, because he's tuned out to them. He's in his own world. But when we play, it's a world that includes us. You see what I'm saying? I think sometimes when I'm looking at you when you're talking, you think that I'm able to like I'm really trying so hard to focus on what you're saying. And then I realize I have no idea what you're talking about. 
I'm just like, I'm like this, I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm like, I understand in the neurobiological diversity. Okay, great. And then all of a sudden I'm looking at you and I start thinking, I have no fucking idea what she's talking about. I'm just sitting there and I'm like, she probably, she's looking at me right now. This poor woman is looking at me and she's like, look at him. He's engaged. <laughs> He's making eye contact. He's thinking about and what I'm And I'm like, saying. this is the one time where eye contact is actually, it's, it's a defense mechanism because it makes it look like I know what you're saying, but I have no clue. Oh. Can you condense that into like one sentence which you just said <laughs> for me so I can respond? Oh my! I think I know what you're talking about. You're talking about him being with us versus being around other children. He's going to react differently. I think he's going to learn more from us. That's what I'm saying. He's going to react differently. He's going to, I mean, that's by one of those things he's reacting to is the way that he's learning. You know, his engagement right. with us uh, has to be based on his level of comfort with us. Mm-hmm. But not only right? that, is, no, is that what you're talking about? I'm Yes, I'm talking about his level of comfort, um, but also because he's not in a fight or flight state being in school where he's got to have his guard up, um, he's in a place in his brain where he can be more open to more sensory input. So he can learn more integratively. Integratively? Yeah. So he's not just learning how to play with the toys or he's not just like working on the colors or like you guys did with the cards, but he can also look at how you're responding, like your tone of voice, your facial expressions, the way you're portraying your emotions. Like those are all things um, that he is not going to pick up as quickly by working like with his peers. But those are skills he can learn. He just needs to experience them, experience them more often and what I'm saying is he gets the chance to learn that and play with whatever it is, you know, he's actually physically playing with, whether it's the blocks or the cards or the words. He's learning both. Like, that's really important that his brain is working on the soft skills while he's learning more of the, you know, structural skills for life. Okay. That's what I think. I think the parents make the biggest difference. I mean, in my, as I've been talking to parents. The parents do. The parents do. I mean, parents that are, um, that are doing their best and they, you know, and, but they're a little, they have a little bit less one-on-one time with their children. They report to me that they're struggling a little bit more to get through the transitions. They've got, their child has stronger boundaries. Uh, the emotions seem, you know, bigger and the meltdowns come more often. And then the parents that I work with who, you know, have cleared a little bit more of their plate because they, they can, and they spend more one-on-one time. They report that their children seem to have, you know, better resiliency and, um, it just seems that they can cope a little bit better. So I just, when I think about all those dynamics and put, and then put it through the lens of working with Declan, I think the one-on-one time with a parent, um, or a trusted older sibling is really key. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have, okay. You've said it all, Rochelle. <laughs> it's not mm. what I'm... When you look at me like that, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say. You, you've literally written a, an article Hmm. by speaking it on the podcast and the best I can do is say at a girl get him woo no I have nothing to contribute (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm constantly studying different ways to connect if you tell me a matter of factly how something is well how am I supposed to chime in and say 
you want me, do you want me to be the counterpoint the play devil's advocate and be like you know what you're wrong well actually it's just an illustration of the fact that um this is the difference between a topic that's researched and a topic that's lived right so i've experienced very marginalized versions of this just through my own sensory input which is really empathic but i don't know what it's like through an autism lens i just know what the research says so that's where our viewpoints are always going to differ a little bit because what you experience is going to feel even in your understanding differently than what I'm kind of acquiring through articles and, you know, client sessions and things like that. So it's fair. Your okay. responses are fair. Going off on a different direction. Sure. I just wanted to talk about this book. One of the first things I I did after I got my autism diagnosis is I downloaded and listened to the audiobook version of this uh, book written by Temple Grandin and Sean Barron um, entitled Unwritten Rules of Social Relationships, Decoding Social Mysteries Through the Unique Perspectives of Autism, which sounds like a riot. But what it was for me was a, a revelation because um, as I was listening to the book and I can't cite specific chapters or anything like that because I don't remember as we've already discussed, but uh, as far as the feeling, how I felt when I was listening to the book, was that it was one of those moments where people sometimes say they're, they're listening to something and it sounds like it was written about them, and that's how close it hit to home, and I've never really had that experience before, so it just struck a nerve with me, and I was engaged the entire time listening to the book. It, I found it fascinating it it was just explaining all of these things that I was like, that's autism, that's autism, that's that's being autistic, that's being autistic, the whole book. Some of the time, I feel like my participation in this uh, in this podcast is to just be myself, mm-hmm. and my expertise comes in having lived this life through the lens of uh, a, an autistic person that didn't know they were autistic right. until a year ago. Does that make sense? Yeah. But my whole point was in talking about that book is. I I highly recommend anybody who suspects they they might be autistic um give it a read or you know do what I did be lazy download the audiobook um it's the same thing you can tell people you read it get a sense of what the autistic experience is and it goes back and forth between Temple and Sean's experiences and it was very we're talking about illuminating it was it was very illuminating yeah very yeah. illuminating uh, I just remember bawling my eyes out as I was driving listening yeah, to I the, remember that phone call the first time give it a listen let me know what you think on Facebook I do think that it's helpful for anyone that maybe you have a child or a friend that you you think might be autistic or they think they're autistic or whatever it's a great book it's a great first step to just kind of trial and error of self-discovery and if you if it resonates then you know you may want to get yourself a psychiatrist and and have yourself evaluated Mm -hmm. because then you might be able to get the support you really need and maybe probably have needed for many years right one of the things that i thought this book did a really good job of is really explaining the premise behind how autism thinks which uh, before this book and i've uh, of all the ones i've read so far from other um, autistic authors they were better at explaining certain experiences but not necessarily like picking apart the process behind it where i thought temple in this book did a really good job of kind of laying the cornerstones of how the world fits together through her eyes which was very it was very interesting for me to see 
the differences at that point. Like she references how much you're focused on logic, you know, as your primary problem solver. But at the same time, it's about um, creating data points, like making sure that each of the experiences that you go through, you've also had a chance to make a decision about it so that you can kind of file that information away into a database which she says is how um, an autistic person is going to really thrive um, because it's the ability to categorize and sort the experiences and the information from daily life that allows you a little bit more um, control over, you know, how you're functioning in life. If you just kind of let everything build up and you're not, you're not making decisions about how you feel or, or about how you felt about that experience or, you know, um, then it just becomes a kind of a convoluted mess and it leads to more meltdowns and more shutdowns because you can't ever kind of process your feelings. I, I had no idea that that's how the process worked um, for some people. Tis true. You've talked to me before about that like, in um, different ways because, you know, we process um, emotions very differently. We, we can process the very same events very differently. Um, and, for someone who like I've been watching you for years and because we process <laughs> yes well because we process information so differently it has always kind of stood out to me as like oh I'm okay well I'm past that but but he's not and then another thing's like you're way past it and I'm not and so it's always been like huh we seem to do things really oppositely now I understand why yeah I mean, there are, you know, what's, what's part of the ADHD is the bottle rocket temper. Right. It's one of those things where I'll get very upset about something and then I'm like, oh man, whoo, I was ready for breakfast. Yeah. You and know, then you're but, over it. And I'm, I'm done because I've already exploded and Rochelle will just be sitting there lingering and I'm like, man, you got to let go of that hate. Oh my God. I'll be bruised for days <laughs> because I remember the things you say and you don't. Okay. Well, Okay, we're gonna. Ha- are we gonna have this argument? It's not an argument. I'm just saying that is why. Is Let's do it. With <laughs> Let's do it right now in front of everybody. With the bottle rocket temper. Mommy also- and daddy, <laughs> stop fighting. There's no fighting. There, with a bottle rocket temper, you also it comes with the superpower of being able to see, t- being able to see and say the meanest thing possible in order to end the argument, and. I call them career enders. <laughs> That's it. But um, boom. Yep. Yep. They're uh, they sting. And That's why we're separated. <laughs> One of the many reasons. Yes, but the point is that as an empath, obviously that doesn't just bounce off of me. Like I, that that stings me for a very long you gotta time. You got to get over it, man. <laughs> that's not how my sensory input in those moments works. That's that's not something I have just a, a choice over. Okay. So now I understand why, though, because Temple's book goes through and explains the process in a way that, um, you know, is pretty, it's deconstructive. So I can see the pieces. I can see how they fit together. My point is that um, what I was going to suggest is that there may be people listening also who do not recognize the signs of autism. Um, They just know that someone that they are close to is like experiencing a lot more challenges in daily life. I think one of the initial things that started, do you fall down a lot? (laughs) You might be autistic. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm saying, so one of the things I learned by the, with the doctors is that in, um, 
with an autistic person or ADHD, I thought this was the same, um, they can be functioning for a period of time, whether it's, you know, 18 months or 18 years, whatever, the period of time is different, but there will come a point where there is a genetic capacity overload and there will create a regression. So in the regression, things that used to be working in daily life stop functioning or they cease to, you know, they, they start um, kind of crumbling. And those moments are identifiable by the people that are living with you. You know, there are breakdowns. Things are breaking down. Like you used to be able to get through your work week and now you can't. Or you used to be able to get through your day and now you can't. So those moments, you know, if you're deploying meaningful observations, then you can look at that and go, well, I don't know what's going on. And we don't know if it's autism. We don't know if it's something completely different, but you just know something's breaking down. Even then, it's helpful to listen to this book because this particular book, if it does apply to neurobiodiversity, then you'll see, so you'll have more of a context for what you're looking at because the places where life starts to break down ha happen to coincide a lot with relationships, um, the social and the emotional pieces, and then uh, your ability to kind of uh, be reciprocal in life and, um, and interact accordingly. Those are the easiest places for life to break down. I mean, that's what we experienced. That's what Declan experienced. I mean, where did you feel life breaking down for you first? Or do you even remember there's a lot going on? In what way? Well, a couple of years ago, like when it was the year my dad died, seven, 2017. So like what initially was breaking down enough where you were like, hey, I'm going to go find someone to help me figure this out. I mean, a lot of that was because of our relationship and the fact that I wasn't able to participate in the relationship in a way that I felt was value, is was being valuable in that time of need for you. Um, and I was not, you know, as we've talked about before, I was not reacting to what you were going through in a way was triggering me right and because i had you know because my dad died when i was 16 and you know there was also some frustrating feelings of frustration as i've said on the show before <laughs> frustrating feelings of frustration regarding the fact that you know when i i don't know i don't know if i fully grieved even though i felt like i did I sure cried a whole lot and, you know, tried to let go and tried to move on and tried to forgive and all those different things you're supposed to do. And, uh, but still you, when people are gone, you care about them and, and you're, it's never something that's easy to, um, to, to move past. Right. And it's, 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 and it's especially hard when I think when you're young and, you know, someone that would normally be there to help you grieve something is gone, you know, like a parent. Right. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big relationship. Yeah. And so when, when you're an adult, I think there was some animosity to it, you know, to a degree, uh, because I, I remember saying to Rochelle, you know, like, Hey, you know, you're not, um, you don't know what it's like because you have both your parents and you have both your parents and you have both your parents. And then it came to a point, came to a head when, well, she doesn't have both of her parents either. Um, and so I think that from Rochelle's perspective, at least from what I saw, 
she's like, well, thanks. You know, I th- like there was. You're talking about the career ender you laid out there that one night where you oh, were I, like. I'm not talking about, I, I don't, because I don't particularly remember a, a career ender. I, my point is that my dad passed away and I was like, you don't know what it's like to have a dead parent. Right. And then you had a dead parent and I was just, you know, and you were like, yeah, well, now I know. Thanks a lot. You know, like it somehow was like my fault that something happened. But what was my fault is that I didn't react very well and that I should probably not have, you know, laid the groundwork for all that dead parent stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was in that time period where I, I was, I, you know, I was, I was just, I was having a very difficult time and didn't know i mean uh, what do you want me to say i was autistic and had adhd and had no fucking idea what i was doing well not only that we had already Um, so and then the two years prior to that like we've talked about briefly like we moved from our safe place in california with all of our friends and the good food we like and um and family and then we moved to colorado where there's nobody so it was a rough and rocky transition through that move can i just add that we we left In-N-Out Burger in California. Oh, that was devastating. I know. And then we I moved to Colorado. Hold on. And then we, right after we moved, they opened In-N-Out Burger in Colorado. Like within like two months. Not even. It was like it was like a couple weeks. Oh, for you, yeah. Yeah, for me. Yeah, and I know so that sucked. The, that doesn't, if that's not the world giving you a big F you, I don't know what it is. But you <laughs> can continue. I just wanted to say. No, it's fair. So, I mean, there was just a lot going on, right? Because when you talk about resistant to change you talk about requesting like sameness you know for emotional security we had none of that we were in a new state we were in a you know new jobs you didn't particularly like your job um you know i got a whole new work environment which added a whole new dimension of complexity to it we were going through all those miscarriages like we didn't have anything stable or working during those two years that created the really you know cobblestone foundation for the cracks to start showing and stress was at an all-time high how did we get on this topic (laughs) (laughs) i was asking you about what breakdowns you remember in your daily life before the diagnosis like what led you to the diagnosis yeah i mean that that to me was one of that was just one of the bigger trigger points to show the dichotomy between how we were dealing with something that really should have been focused where you should have been focused on you and I should have been focused on letting you focus on you. Right. The external but somehow I had to f- still think about how I was feeling about my own shit. Right. Um, it was very triggering. Yeah. Well, and that's that. So that's kind of the point I'm trying to make is so when um, the outside world events become really big and deeply emotional regardless of whether it's positive or negative it's just it's a big feeling to deal with going back to what temple was saying earlier about being able to make decisions about events in order to categorize and sort them emotions is one of those really big sensory input moments and so we talk about two years of moving and changing jobs and miscarriages and my 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 grandmother died you know we we just had so many things going on that unless you intentionally had a strategy to recognize the big feelings and then work with them you know to make decisions and move through them they were just gonna basically hover on top of you until they broke you which is kind of what happened you know and it's and it's unfair because we did not know so we just watched life get more and more difficult and think, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like, how do, how do you even move forward? So 
when we talk about illuminating neurodiversity, this is one of the key areas that we're working to bring to light is because it's in these moments where families don't have a ton of answers. I mean, you don't even know what to start Googling. We didn't even know to look for mental health or, you know, neurobiodiversity at that point. We didn't know what to search for. We just thought life sucks. How do you search for that? How do you make life get better? Like what is happening? You thought I had a brain tumor. I did because there were moments where you were fine and then something would just click. It would just like a light switch. Just there it goes. And there for the next two hours you were in such a high state of fight or flight that I, you couldn't downregulate to save your life. And things got scary. Like I didn't know how to downregulate you. You could be very upset. You could be very loud and vocal and very deeply emotional. And, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know how to frame what I was seeing in order to ask someone for help. You know, that's, that's a scary place for everyone to be. That's why we're here is to say, hey, <laughs> we're probably not the only ones experiencing this. And if you do, there are there's ways to get help. There's ways to start looking for things and start right. asking critical questions and narrowing it down. And part of it's just awareness, just awareness that this is what this looks like. Well, I mean, being self-aware is such a huge part of it because you need to be able to kind of intrinsically know that you need help and then you need the guidance right to, and for me the reason that i even had an inkling to go to therapy was because i went so often when i was younger and i felt like that was something that was going to be helpful for me and for rochelle therapy for her is a massage you know or it, and i'm not trying to down talk no, no. what you so do at the, but at with the, the whole time month, yeah, go Let ahead. me just say, so like, was a massage or, you know, it was like craniosacral therapy. So it's like this body work, this I've... body work thing. And, and, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not the kind of therapy I need. The therapy I need is like talk therapy. I need to go and, and I need to hash it out with a stranger. Right. Um, and, and that, that decision completely changed my life. It changed everything. Um, and I, it's not that I, felt negatively about talk therapy. I just had our, you know, zero experience with it. It wasn't a type of therapy that was um, really utilized in my family on either side that I knew of. And uh, I was just, I had no context to it. What I knew was body work. I've been in body work for my whole life and that's the piece I was familiar with. So I knew how to do emotional processing and trauma processing through body work. But what you said to me, and I'll never forget, um, you said, Oh boy. I trust me, Rochelle, I know that this will work. And I said, okay, because I do trust you. And I could feel that this was a very trustworthy statement. And I knew that you believed it. Um, even though I had no idea what kind of outcome to like, I didn't know what pathway we were headed down, but I knew that you believed that this was the right step. That's all I needed to know. Okay. But it was really interesting because you had a very similar reaction to your first therapy session as you did when you listened to Temple Grandin's book. Well, when I went, my first therapy session with with Lori. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? you? So you described to me this feeling of almost crying, being like, someone understands me. Yes, that's me. Like, you finally were hearing explanations about the things that have been torturing you with someone who also said, I can, you know, I know what you're going through and I know how to get you through it. 
what's really difficult now in retrospect is that she was painting a picture like in painting a full picture and i'm like yes 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 but in reality it was it was like someone painting a picture and then that it's like uh painting a picture of something and then that picture being a smaller part of an even bigger picture. Right. You know, cause ADHD is only a, a little part of who, you know, who and what I am. Right. Uh, you didn't know that at the time. I mean, when you're learning something that big and it's brand new, obviously you get really close and on it, you zoom in on, on the details to learn it. And then, right. You know, as you gain perspective, you zoom out a little bit more and zoom out and it didn't take, I think after the first year, one of the things that was more therapeutic about those visits was that she would, she was so kind and generous with her time and would let you talk for sometimes two or three hours, which is what you really needed because you needed someone to talk through all the daily events so you could process them. Not necessarily that she was guiding you more and more on ADHD because what, what I was noticing over time, the longer you were in those sessions, the less relevant the actual therapeutic strategies were because I think we were starting to uncover more need and she kept trying to reframe everything through ADHD and that just wasn't a complete enough picture. Right. Yeah. And it's so no fault to her. None. No, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a difficult road. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of this thing that we're doing is, is to, to show that, that it is, it is not an easy road to travel and you you may be on one end of the spectrum or another or in a different uh, segment of the spectrum you know because you could just be anxious and when I say just be anxious you know meaning having this terrible affliction right Uh, anxiety can be crippling also no I know that's why I said when I said just be anxious but it's easy to say when I, I get anxious you know, and I and I do have medication that helps me with that, but uh, even that, it's still, it's it's a thing that lingers, and it's uh, there are so many different pathways that uh, one can take, and sometimes you don't really have a choice um, because you you're dealt a certain set of cards. Yep, and you have to kind of play with what you got. Uh, but the cool thing about discovering all this right now is that there is um, so much more support out there. So I think the number one thing to know is if you do start feeling like you have ADHD or anxiety or autism, even empathy, you know, depression, like depression if you have, um, if you're an empathic, like the thing is, is when you Wait, st- or empathic, is that what you said? Empathic is on the scale. Did you just lump yourself? I thought I thought I was the one that was neurodiverse and you're not. You're autistic and I'm not. No, but the very first episode we say, I say I'm neurodiverse and you say, and I'm neurotypical. Right. I've been researching. So you're not neurotypical anymore? I don't believe. Finally. I I am. (laughs) No. I mean, I said from the beginning I'm dyslexic, but I did, but not enough to. Let's get her a pill. Oh gosh. (laughs) I know. I've always been empathic, but in researching, um, a lot of how these, you know, conditions affect the the entire biological system. I really feel like empaths um, are on the scale also because it's really the opposite end of when you have um, a different type of control issue with emotions. So, but autistic people are empathetic as well. I agree absolutely. Now, most people, most things you look up, 
unless it's written by uh, an autistic person will tell you like medical science tells you um, that you don't really recognize your emotions and you're not capable of empathy, which I think is absolutely incorrect and that they will have to change in the future. But, but it started me thinking because of that discrepancy, I've been diving into the emotions a lot and I, I disagree a hundred percent. I think anxiety is deeply connected to emotions. Depression is deeply connected to emotions. ADHD is deeply connected to emotions. So is autism. And what varies between all four of those is the ability to express them or how you express and process your emotions. And so then it got me thinking, I was like, well, how are all those on the scale? Those are all deeply emotional processing um, systems, but empaths <laughs> are almost the opposite. I mean, it, they fit on the same scale because we, we feel everything also, but really can't control ourselves from how we express it. Whereas I think, um, you know, there's different levels of control in, in each of the way that these diagnoses play out. So I think it fits on the scale. It's not autism. I'm not saying it is, but it's in the way that emotions are received and processed that are similar. You heard it here, folks. First, Rochelle is autistic. No, I'm not. I'm empathic. <laughs> I think empaths are part of neurobiodiversity. That's the distinction. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, just messing around. I know. I hear you. So... Um, having that said, I do believe emotions being one of the biggest pieces of this, uh, entire puzzle is one of the reasons why the, when life starts to break down, it becomes so frustrating so quickly is because it's not just breaking down because, oh, you stop eating or you're being a picky eater or, um, you know, your sleep issues have gotten extraordinarily bad because you've had sleep issues your whole life. It's when the emotions get involved and you stop being able to process them and kind of move forward in life. Like there's a regression backwards. There's a loss of skills, whether, you know, there's a loss of you lose a job or you lose your ability to move on to the next job or you lose your ability at that moment to kind of grieve and move through that process. So it lingers like it's when the emotions get involved that things start to really break down. That's where we need the most support is getting our um, village our village through the emotions. That's also why I think it's common that empaths um, were so attracted to um, big penises, <laughs> helping people connect with their emotions. <laughs> oh man, I took a left turn. <laughs> so on that note, the emotions count. I think that's the biggest thing here is that the emotions matter and, and um, that they're there. Absolutely there. Just because they're not expressed as easily or in the way that you might want to or expect to hear them, that's where it's really important. That's right. Sometimes when someone cups your butt cheek, that's just the way. <laughs> that's that's autistic for hello. <laughs> okay. Well, you're going to have to write me a dictionary then because um, that's funny. But yeah, the emotions are absolutely there. Don't let anybody tell you that, that, that they're not in touch with your emotions. You are. You're deeply in touch with them. Well, anyways, thank you for joining us this week and um, taking this ride with us today. We are happy to have you and we'll be back in a week. Thank you for listening. I'm Blake. I'm Michelle. This has been another recording of You Don't Sound Autistic. Take us out, Taylor Swift. You think that was a, a, an okay enough ending? I think